0: Are gathering this evening, Good Friday, it's obvious we're here to remember the events of the cross, to look at them, and to discuss the significance of the cross. And so with that in mind, I thought we'd kind of begin this evening by looking at the final few moments of Jesus's life while he's hanging on the cross by creating a synopsis of all four gospel narratives. Instead of turning to one specific passage, I've kind of done a little work and kind of combined the four narratives into one. We'll put them on the screen. There's not really a passage you can turn to. We would be all over the place. But just read along with me. Beginning with the sixth hour. So Jesus, it's the sixth hour. He's crucified at noon, the sixth hour. There's darkness that covers the land for three hours. So that when the ninth hour approached, the end of his experience, we're told Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. Elijah. But Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So immediately, one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last and yielded up his spirit. I'd like to pose this evening a question that at first might seem very easy to answer. Why is the crucifixion of Jesus such a significant event that even 2,000 years after the fact, millions of people around the globe from all different walks and cultures alike gather in its recognition? If Jesus were only a mere man, the crucifixion would represent how most of humanity— is, well, at the complete mercy of a broken and corrupt system, if he was a mere man, it'd still be significant. If Jesus was just a moral man hanging on the cross, the crucifixion would represent the constant injustices that permeate our evil world. If Jesus was nothing more than a prophet sent by God, the crucifixion would represent, well, the great lengths that some men go to squelch the revelation of God, even as the son of man, the son of God. Many have seen and viewed Jesus's tragic death on the cross as the greatest evidence of the depravity of man and rebellion to his creator. And while all of these perspectives are true, we understand that what took place on the cross represented much, much more, More for on the cross, as the sinless Lamb of God, we believe Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world. To this point, Christians universally agree that this, that Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sin, that that, to pay for sin is the most significant aspect of the cross, of the crucifixion. However, while most would agree, very few take time to consider the particulars of how that's even possible. We all believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins, but how? How did he do that? We all agree, but we don't really think about how that was possible for starters. Just to be clear that the Bible teaches us that Jesus' death was only able to satisfy the righteous requirements for the sins of the world because while hanging upon the cross, he took upon himself the sins of the world. So Jesus, we understand, could pay for the sins of the world because on the cross, he took upon himself the sins of the world. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, affirms this. He says, God made him speaking of jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him not only does paul affirm this reality but it seems to explain the idea that on the cross jesus took upon himself the sins of the world that seems consistent with the experiences of jesus on the cross his final few hours notice in, in the in the compilation that we read that darkness covered the land for a period of three hours. From the sixth hour, noon, to the ninth hour, three o'clock, darkness covered everything. Webster's not only defines darkness as, well, being devoid of light, duh, but it also defines darkness as that which arises from or shows evil traits or desires as a literary technique, the word darkness indicates the existence, the presence of something evil, something wicked. Metaphorically, even in biblical context, we see that darkness refers to the human condition of sinfulness, that we're dark. It also refers to the wrath of God as a consequence of these sins. In Egypt, darkness came across the land, and what was it? It was the judgment, the wrath of God. It would seem that the physical darkness that engulfed the land was an outward representation of a spiritual experience that Jesus was enduring during these three hours. For three hours, imagine it, on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the full way of sin, the experience of sin, when he had never experienced that before. The dirtiness of sin, the guilt of sin, that grimy feeling you experience when you did something you know you shouldn't have done, all of that came crashing onto Jesus during these three hours, which then explains that while from out of the darkness, Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? this Aramaic phrase, which if you don't know, that was Jesus's native language, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it was included by all of the the gospel writers because the Aramaic phrase itself denotes, signifies a terror, an intense terror. The cry itself, the phrase itself in the language itself, indicated that something was happening that horrified Jesus. It shocked Jesus. It petrified Jesus down to his very bones. And then the translation is given to explain what terrified him. So we're given the Aramaic phrase so that we know, wow, he's freaked out. Then we're given the translation so we know why he's freaked out. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus took upon himself, sin. Not only does he experience the effects of that for the first time, but he experiences sin's most basic consequence for the first time. Jesus is separated from God. Now, we don't have time to get into the theological implications of that other than just to say that though Jesus positionally still remained God, it was his nature, he was God, you don't change who you are, Positionally, he remained God. In this singular instance, Jesus found himself practically separated from his father because he personally stunk of sin. After this, because the people kind of mistake Eloi for Elijah, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said two words. I thirst. Now, aside from the fact that Jesus wanted something to drink, and very likely he wanted something to drink so that he could speak two more phrases, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit, with a certain measure of clarity. However, the spiritual implications of these two words, I thirst, rolling off the lips of Jesus Christ, huh. it continues to present the idea that while on the cross, Jesus has been separated from his father by sin. That, that I thirst is, is a cry of his soul of something deeper. Understand, Jesus not only experienced the shame of sin, the darkness, and separation from God, But for the first time, Jesus experienced the full effects of sin, that which presented in his own soul. He thirsted, he lacked, he needed. You know, this is the only time in all of the Gospels that you have mention of Jesus being thirsty. It's chosen for this moment, this one moment, as sin came crashing down, that something was missing, there was a longing. Something needed to be quenched. Don't forget he was the living water that you could drink of and never thirst again. But in this moment, that which gave living water craved it himself. Now while most Christians comprehend the reality that Jesus's crucifixion death is only significant if Jesus indeed took upon himself the sins of the world. Clearly, it would be impossible for Jesus to pay for the sins of the world if the sins of the world were not placed upon him while on the cross. Well, we would agree with that. Few understand the mechanism then for how any of that was legally possible. Have you ever thought about that? Okay, I know Jesus died for the sins of the world. I know he died for the sins of the world because the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. But, huh? Like, how is that possible? Like, are we making up rules as we go along? Like, maybe it's just the weird way that I think, that I process things. But to me, as I wrap my brain around what's happening, I'm just logically working its way. Okay, Jesus died for the sins of the world that makes the cross awesome. And he did that because, well, the sins of the world were placed on him. That's awesome. But how? Like, how is that feasible? What legal right does Jesus have to do such a thing? The answer is found in what I'm going to call the doctrine of transference. Now, let me define the doctrine of transference. The doctrine of transference, transference is defined as the act of transferring sin from one person onto a sacrificial offering. Now, now understand, in the Levitical law, the idea of transference was central to the entire sacrificial system that God had established. It, it's all over the law. In a general sense, aside from identification, the act of laying your hands upon an innocent sacrifice as you presented it to the priest, it wasn't just about connecting, laying on of hands was about literally transference. You were transferring your sin to the sacrifice. It was then, as a result of that transference, that the death of the sacrifice was accepted by God, as what? As the payment for your sin. You transfer sin to the sacrifice. The sacrifice is accepted by God, slaughtered, making your sin paid for. But furthermore, the debt of sin, now being satisfied by the offering that you made, brought about with it another component. You see, the blood of this sacrifice, the one accepted by God on your behalf, could now then be used, according to Levitical law, as a cleansing agent. Understand, whatever the blood from an accepted sacrifice was sprinkled upon, or what covered, was declared by God, to be now ceremonially clean. And yet, the problem with the Levitical model of transference, as it applies to us, was twofold. First, the process of transferring sin from a human to like your pet lamb, Chippetto, like, like the process of, of like the idea that, a human's transference of sin onto an innocent animal. Like the problem with that is that it only afforded a person temporary payment and provisional cleansing. Why? Because the sacrifice itself was inadequate. It was insufficient. As the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse four, correctly observes, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, speaking of the sins of a human being. Keep in mind, atonement in the Levitical perspective was at best seen as a covering over of sin and not the full removing of sin. The frustrating reality when it came to transference was that the only way, legally, the only way, logically, to permanently satisfy the debt of sin in order to bring about a complete cleansing from sin by the blood of the sacrifice was for a human to take upon himself sin. For human sin to have a sacrifice that was permanent and a cleansing that was complete, human sin needed to be transferred not to an inadequate animal, but a sinless human sacrifice. But this led to another significant problem. Even if such a sacrifice theoretically existed, now you're left with who makes the offering. Like, who can do that? Like, keep in mind, no man, including the priest, for, by the way, a lot of reasons, like I had to delete like three paragraphs of my Bible study for the sake of time explaining why the priest couldn't make such a sacrifice. It goes all the way back to Aaron and like, okay, so who makes the offering for Aaron? And Moses is like, ah, I guess I got to. But it's like, but who made an offering for you? Because you're, you're a sinner. Like no man, according to the law, no one, not even the priest, could offer such a sacrifice and the act itself remain just. If you offered a perfect human sacrifice as the transference of your sin, like that's murder, not transference, right? Like you have, you have a fundamental problem with that. You see, to this point, the only legal way transference could occur in this dynamic at all would be for two parameters to be, to be reached. A, the sinless sacrifice Willingly chooses to take upon himself your sin, which means that transference occurs not because you touched the sacrifice, but because the sacrifice was willing to touch you. And B, the sacrifice, acting as a de facto high priest, is willing to offer himself to die in your place. Like the sacrifice has to be willing to take sin upon himself but then he also has to be willing to offer himself, which brings us back to the cross. Are the gears turning? The great reality of this event, the crucifixion, is that Jesus's death on the cross paid for the sins of the world because he was willing to act both as the sacrifice, he was willing to transfer upon himself the sins of the world, and act as the priest. Scripture tells us that Jesus willingly offered his own life to incur the wrath of God so that the debt of sin might be, might be satisfied. Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27, we, we read concerning Jesus that we have such a high priest that's fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those other high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the, for the other people's. For this, speaking of his offering, he as high priest did once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus on the cross is not just the sacrifice. He's the high priest offering the sacrifice, but it gets even better because sin was transferred to Jesus on the cross. Not only is it then by his death, the debt for sin is permanently satisfied, but now, for the first time ever, complete cleansing from sin is made available by his blood. Because he's a perfect sacrifice, his blood provides perfect cleansing. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, satisfies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, you have it there again, without spot to God, now cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Old Testament The old covenant, this whole system of law demanded that we make continual sacrifices because the blood of the inadequate sacrifice would only provide a temporary covering of sin. However, because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and according to the law lasting, acceptable. The new covenant no longer requires that we make any sacrifice at all because his blood permanently cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. If that's not highlighted in your Bible, you should highlight it, underline it, footnote it. That's awesome. But then the author of Hebrews continues, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly for the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I'll give you a couple other passages. Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Ephesians 1, 7. In Jesus, we have redemption where? Through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. First John 1, 7, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1, 5, Jesus Christ loved us and washed us from our sins. How? In his own blood. Revelation 5, 9, for you were slain, speaking of Jesus, and now have redeemed us to God. How? By your blood. You think it's significant? And beyond that, do you understand the implications of this? Why Jesus's work on the cross was so revolutionary and radical that it demands our attention at least once a year, if not every single Sunday. Don't forget, the goal of transference in both the Levitical law and the new covenant, we're the same. Like both desired righteousness or right standing with God brought about by the cleansing of the blood of the sacrifice. However, the way transference works in each instance is radically different. In the Levitical law, transference required of the guilty for us to make continual sacrifices to atone for sin in order to be right with God, but it never worked. All we had were our ineffective sacrifices. However, in the new covenant, what Jesus did on the cross, transference, it now requires nothing at all of the guilty. Why? Why? because a sacrifice was made by Jesus to atone for sin, making me now right with God. And the new covenant, all a man needs is not his empty sacrifices or his empty offerings. All a man needs is Jesus because he's proven to be an able sacrifice and won the law transference is all about me laying my hands upon the sacrifice to achieve a right standing before God. In the other, the new covenant, transference is all about the sacrifice, laying down his life in order to make me right with God. And one, the law, my faith looks where? Upon my sacrifice to earn the forgiveness of God. But in the other, the new covenant, my faith, looks not upon my sacrifice, but the sacrifice. I don't earn the forgiveness of God. I am given by that sacrifice, the forgiveness of God. In one instance, I earn it. The other instance, I'm given it. And it's all legal, baby. This is why the old covenant was an agreement with God based in works. While the new covenant is an agreement with God founded in grace because of two things, the insufficiency of the Levitical sacrifice and the effectiveness of Jesus' work on the cross. Satisfying of debt, we'll call that atonement, and the cleansing of sin, we'll call that justification and sanctification, cannot be earned. It's impossible. It cannot be earned through my sacrifices. Instead, these things, atonement and justification and sanctification are given to me by Jesus and received by me in faith. My only use of these hands is to receive. That's it. Now, with this complete understanding of the crucifixion in mind, I want to examine Jesus' own words communicated through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 25. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you have a, a screen, scroll there. But Jesus says something through Paul about his death that in light of this stuff is radical. He says, Paul writing, for that which I received from the Lord I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said take, eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same manner he also took the cup after supper Jesus was southern because only southerners say supper saying this cup is the new covenant and my blood this due as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, we understand that in this passage, Jesus is instituting what we know as the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion. But when he does this, he does something interesting. Jesus specifically ties himself and his crucifixion, the work on the cross, with two elements of the traditional Passover Seder in order to illustrate the work he accomplished on the cross. First, we're told, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, the Seder dinner had 15 different parts, a 15 part meal. Bread, when it came to the Seder, played a significant role and three of the 15. First, there was the fifth step of the Seder, known as the Yahatz. This simply meant the breaking of the matzah. Early in the dinner, three pieces of stacked matzah bread, unleavened flat bread, indicating sinlessness, were presented to the Father of the home. He then took the middle piece. Which we know as the aphicomen, removing it from the other two, he broke it into many pieces before carefully wrapping the aphicomen into linen, only to hide it for later in the meal. That's the first stage of the bread. Aphicomen, the middle piece is removed, broken, and hidden. Now, the next time bread comes into play in the Seder, it's directly before the main course. We, we call it the eighth step known as the Mahatsi Matzah or literally the eating of the matzah. That's when this would occur. At this point in the Seder before the main, you know, the main dish would be presented, the two remaining pieces of unbroken matza bread, the first and the third would be taken by the host. They would be passed around. They would be dipped into the same dish and consumed. Very little fanfare in regards to this. It's kind of like getting your fingers clean from the things you had done earlier, getting your, your belly a little digested. You're getting yourself ready like an appetizer for the main dish. Now, note, while this is happening, we're told Jesus does something interesting because he identifies in this moment his betrayer, Judas. Judas. Once the main course is all wrapped up, it's finished, Seder's now nearing completion, the 12th step, known as the Zafunin, or the eating of the Afakomen, would finally occur. At this point, the host would ask for this hidden Afakomen to be retrieved and presented. Then before distributing these broken wafers of Afakomen unleavened bread, the host would explain the significance. As a matter of fact, like he would literally declare before distributing the Aphekomen that this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Now, this is when Jesus breaks protocol. This moment. So he asked the Aphekomen to be retrieved and presented. And instead of making this common statement, Jesus blows it all up because he says, this bread, take it and eat it. For this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And and it's likely that the idea where we have presented of him breaking it indicates that earlier in the meal, when it was traditional for you to break the Afikoman, that he reserved that, that he skipped protocol to break it in this moment. Understand, Jesus, he's crystal clear what the Afikoman no longer represented. These three pieces were seen as being the patriarch. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Afikoman, was seen as being representative of Isaac. How Isaac willingly offered himself to be a sacrifice, surrendering to the will of his father. You remember on Mount Moriah, that he was willing to be broken. It's always represented Isaac. But in this moment, Jesus says, no. Isaac and this aphakomen bread were always a picture of me. He says, this is my body broken for you. You see, on the cross, the son, the second of the three members of the Trinity, willingly offered his own body to bring about sacrificial atonement for sin. And I hope you realize this was not a work that Jesus needed to do for himself. Jesus was sinless. But as he even mentions, it was a work he was willing to do for you. Instead of incurring the wrath of God on account of the debt your sins demand, a debt, by the way, you could never satisfy, Jesus willingly offered himself in your place. This is why every time you come to the table and take up that little piece of unleavened bread, the afficomen, you've been commanded by Jesus to remember the sacrifice he made on that cross on your behalf. When you take that bread and you see its stripes and how it's been punctured, You're to remember that he bore your sin. He took your place. He willingly offered himself as a sacrifice so that you might be spared the judgment of God. The bread serves to remind us that he who was whole was broken so that we who are broken might be made whole. Amen? But that was not it. That was not all. Then we're told Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, throughout the Passover Seder, four cups of wine in particular were presented in order to remember the four promises that God had given to Moses In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, there was first the cup of sanctification. Then there was the cup of deliverance. Then there was the cup of redemption. Finally, everything would conclude with the cup of restoration. And while all four cups are significant in their own right, following the eating of the africomen, when Jesus takes the bread, following that moment was what was known as the barak, or the third Cup of wine representing the cup of redemption. It's when this cup was presented, which symbolically represented the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb that was applied to the doorposts in Egypt, causing the angel of death to pass over the house, providing life, reserving judgment. Now, notice something about how Jesus says what he says because the emphasis of Jesus's words in the moment focus where? They focus on the cup, not its contents. Did you notice that? This is the cup, right? He presents the cup. The cup that had always represented redemption. It's as though that while the bread was symbolic of his body, the wine contained in the cup of redemption, it didn't represent him. It represented instead the blood of an insufficient offering. It's why he doesn't make the coalition between himself and the contents, but himself and the cup. When Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he's saying that while the cup that has always represented redemption of the people would remain the same, same cup, the vessel itself would now be filled with something different. Whereas before it was filled with the blood of an inadequate sacrifice, it would now be filled with the blood of an adequate sacrifice. Jesus keeps the cup the same. It's the cup of redemption. But what I'm going to put in it is different. He replaces the contents. In this moment, he's telling them that redemption will no longer rely on an old covenant model filled with the blood of an inadequate sacrifice. Redemption would now rely on a new covenant filled with the blood of a sufficient sacrifice. And what does he say? My blood. This is why every time you come to the table and you take the cup of redemption, you're to remember the results of the sacrifice Jesus made for you on the cross. And what were those results? Yes, his body was broken as the sacrifice to satisfy a debt you could not pay. But from that sacrifice flowed a blood that is more than able to cleanse once and for all of all sin. That that blood, his body being broken can satisfy a debt, but that blood that was spilt can permanently cleanse you making you forever right with God. It can wash away all of our sins. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My sin may have been transferred to Jesus on the cross, but it was the spilling of his blood that now transfers to me his righteousness when it covers me. Not a work that I do, but a work that was done by him, not just as the sacrifice, but as the high priest willing to make the sacrifice. Finally, I'm struck by the reality that in regards to both the bread and the cup, Jesus does something interesting. Like, you'd be hard-pressed to find another example of it. He issues a command. Like, like, literally, Jesus gives a command, a commandment. The commandment of Jesus, you could call it. He commands us that when we partake of these things, we do it in remembrance of him. This phrase, do this, was not a suggestive term. It's strong. It's directive, which means that it's important that what those things represent are important for you and I to always remember. Remember it, friend, don't forget it. Every time, don't forget it, when you tip don't forget, do the, remember, 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 don't forget it. And why does Jesus do this? Because we're so easy to forget. We're all big three-year-olds who have to constantly be reminded. And what is he reminding us of? What is it that we should never forget? It's that our salvation from sin and favor with God is not found in a Levitical model based upon the sacrifices that I offer to God, but that salvation and favor is found in a new covenant built on nothing more than Jesus' sacrifice for me. As the hymnist wrote, and and we often sing, my hope is built on nothing less than what? Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust this sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so, Father,